You are listening to the Renegade Economist, investigating monopoly profits, great corruption, and the policy solutions demanded. Geeky but essential, the tools to the fairest and most efficient economic system awaited. With your host, Carl Fitzgerald. Welcome, dear listeners, to the 594th edition of the Renegade Economist. The show where we try to remind you that economics should be an interpretation of reality rather than a diversion for monopolists. Yes, economics can be made for the good. Under our current system of monopoly capitalism, everything is about rent-seeking. That is where the easy money is made. And a great example came in today's Guardian newspaper with an article on carbon offsets and the rorting that's going on in New South Wales. Deeply concerning, government consultant made millions from New South Wales environmental offsets and a government advisor made more than $40 million selling conservation offsets to the government department that his company made recommendations to. The offsets were were required for some of the mega projects going on in New South Wales, including the Western Sydney Infrastructure Plan and, of course, the new Sydney Airport at Badgerys Creek, where all sorts of incredible windfalls have gone on with the land there. Well, this is uh, bad policy upon bad policy. Uh, General taxpayers' funds, uh, probably raised out of payroll taxes and stamp duties, have funded these offsets which were meant to offset say for example sydney the badgery creek airport project and instead of uh, those stamp duty funds being used for that uh, it should have been funded the offset should have been funded out of some sort of rezoning windfall gains tax on those landholders who have made so much money around sydney airport around all of the new road and rail connecting points And that should have funded uh, the offsets incredibly high. Seems like there's uh, about $140 million this consultant is tied up in in terms of windfalls from these carbon offsets. Now, that would naturally flow into the land values of that site. And uh, there should be some sort of carbon offsets windfalls tax on this. So the guy hasn't really done anything incredibly productive. He's only preserved existing forestry sure some rare uh, types of forest but uh, nothing to warrant this sort of return Uh, it's not even a net gain to uh, carbon sequestration required for these projects it's just preserving what's already running so uh, yeah that's quite different to here in Victoria where it appears that the net gain accounting system must ensure that developers pay for any sort of uh, offset project and that there's an actual gain so some form of plantation is required it's not perfect but it is an improvement so yeah it it hurts when i see green economics being uh, distorted like that and some of my doom scrolling of recent has uh yeah, pushed my thinking a little bit. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to reveal the title of this uh, article until afterwards, but uh, Bonnie Waring in the conversation writes how 
plants absorb CO2 from the atmosphere, transforming it into leaves, wood and roots. This everyday miracle has spurred hopes that plants, particularly fast-growing tropical trees, can act as a natural break on climate change, capturing much of the CO2 emitted by fossil fuel burning. Across the world, governments, companies and conservation charities have pledged to conserve or plant massive numbers of trees. But the fact is that there aren't enough trees to offset society's carbon emissions, and there never will be. I recently conducted a review of the available scientific literature to assess how much carbon forests could feasibly absorb. If we absolutely maximise the amount of vegetation all land on Earth could hold, we'd sequester enough carbon to offset about 10 years of greenhouse gas emissions at current rates. After that, there could be no further increase in carbon capture. Writes Bonnie Waring in There aren't enough trees in the world to offset society's carbon emissions and there never will be. So yeah, that was uh, another point that you know really pushes my buttons on what on earth do we need? Uh, my Facebook post was calling all paradigm changes. That's certainly what's required because uh, yeah, we just do not have the right tools in place at the moment. Uh, even if we used all the best carbon taxes, all the best uh, resource rent charges, land taxes, it still feels like something is missing. We're going to need uh, a new scientific development to break through. Great that the Grattan Institute was out today saying, out this week, saying that yes, we could replace all coal-fired power with renewables uh, in the near future by 2030 I think was their number and there would be no drastic impact in terms of pricing they wouldn't commit to a net zero agenda by then because uh, wind droughts during winter would undermine that potential but somewhere coming up we need some big changes and uh, yeah I won't quite go into some of the radical science I'm into, but uh, it is worth looking what's happening out there. Another point we must recognise uh, that Steve Keen pointed out uh, late last year in, in his article, Nobel Prize winning econ economics of climate change is misleading and dangerous. Here's why. While climate scientists warn that climate change could be catastrophic, Economists such as 2018 Nobel Prize winner William Nordhaus assert that it will be nowhere near as damaging. In a 2018 paper published after he was awarded the Nobel Prize, Nordhaus claimed that 3 degrees Celsius of warming would reduce global GDP by just 2.1% compared to what it would be in the absence of climate change. Even a 6 degree increase in global temperature, he claimed, would reduce GDP by just 8.5%. Well, Steve Keen, now uh, living in Thailand, trying to hide out from uh, COVID. Seems like COVID's chasing him there. It's bubbling away everywhere, isn't it? Big pharma just don't have the answers. Our public uh, health system can't keep up. Whew. Scary times, but uh, Keen goes through uh, Nordhauser's celebrated work 
and uh, pulls apart some of uh, his glorious assumptions to assume that some 87% of GDP aren't included in his analysis because they are undertaken in carefully controlled environments that will not be directly affected by climate change. So does this mean we need some sort of command and control system to drive change through? It's incredible seeing what's coming out of China where I think it was October in 2020 they announced they were going to have a carbon trading system up and were going net zero by 2060. Uh, now this carbon trading system is going to be set up by uh, June of this year. So that is an incredibly rapid rollout and we hope they're taking all the past learnings from uh, the occasional uh, trading systems that have popped up around the planet. Uh, very much uh, interested in seeing how that drives change across uh, both uh, supply and demand sides. And that is the benefit of having some sort of charge on carbon is that it affects both sides of the market at once. If we have a top-down technology type agenda that the government here in Australia is pushing, it's going to... Uh, incentivize a lot of innovation in that space but those first movers who get in are set to make an absolute fortune and the question is uh, uh, whilst that will make a lot of money and it will hopefully lead to cost savings that inspire consumers to purchase in those in this new product will it have enough societal improvements across the board it might be an improvement in air conditioning, for example. But is that going to reduce the sort of carbon emissions we've got occurring because of suburban sprawl, for example, from uh, the size of our houses with this current housing boom on in Australia? It sounds like the price of wood is going through the roof. There's just not enough wood to build the frames for all these houses. So... Yeah, again and again, we need this holistic approach that covers the whole market and not just a one tiny section. And uh, I've got another article here from Steve Keane. The future is carbon coin. And he talks about uh, the pain that uh, any sort of carbon tax puts upon society. And his take on the Yellow Jackets protest in France was uh, that the government hadn't built in any effective compensation for low, those low-income earners. And that led to the protests and that led to uh, their form of carbon tax being scrapped rather rapidly. So uh, his proposal is a universal carbon credit uh, based around a, a system of rationing. So every adult in a country would receive a UCC, the universal carbon credit, measured in tonnes of carbon dioxide per year for the carbon dioxide uh, in the purchases of goods and services. This allowance would be set initially at the level of the average carbon consumption in a country. Given how unequal the distribution of income has become, this average would in fact be well above the amount of carbon consumed by the vast majority of the population. 90% or more of the population would not consume that much carbon per year. 
So obviously uh, those on lower incomes would have surplus uh, carbon credits they could sell to the wealthy and uh, that would give them a little bit more income to cover some of their carbon costs and uh, provide a penalty for the wealthy jet-setting around the world doing their uh, Instagram influencing uh, wherever they can. Uh, but the key to this uh, that I've learned is that that carbon budget from which the rations are set upon must reduce every year. And so that reduction in carbon credits means that everyone across the board is encouraged to buy greener products. And from that, uh, we move away from the energy intensive orientation of industry and towards more green powered goods and services. So one of those articles, I think I've mentioned it before, uh, by Jason Hickel and Georgios Kallas is, is green growth possible? And they talk about another non-pricing mechanism. That's what's good about Steve Keen's universal carbon credit. Is it's to do with the actual volume of carbon we have left within this planetary boundary by 2030. How much carbon can we actually afford? Well, in their article, uh, this Hickel article, is green growth good? They're talking about the decoupling from resource intensity, fossil fuel based products to green based products. And uh, they write, the conventional metric for measuring an economy's resource use is domestic material consumption, DMC, which is the total weight of raw materials, biomass, minerals, metals, and fossil fuels. To assess the relationship between GDP and resource use, many governments adopted the practice of dividing GDP by DMC. This gives an indication of the resource efficiency of an economy. GDP grows faster than DMC, i.e. relative decoupling. The economy is becoming more resource efficient. They then go on to show that uh, barely any nation has made great progress on this. Uh, South Africa, surprisingly, being one of the few that has. And the conclusion uh, finds that uh, empirical evidence does not support the theory of green growth. This requires that we achieve permanent absolute decoupling of resource use from GDP. An empirical projection showed no absolute decoupling at a global scale, even under highly optimistic conditions. For me, that was a big one, recognizing that green growth was not the sort of outcome that, well, in a way, you know, this green growth they're measuring hasn't really had a serious uh, ecological tax driving it either. So there's still some wriggle room to hope that a more sensible tax base, one where land and natural resource use is taxed away and uh, Pollution is also uh, taxed at, at higher levels 
Will that encourage uh, greater resource uh, efficiency? Will that encourage uh, scientific development in carbon sequestration and, and other key issues we need to uh, try and hang on to 1.5 degrees? So I had an interesting little email debate with uh, a supporter recently and his big concern was of course uh, runaway economic growth and uh, the solution for him was uh, to enact the Global Wellbeing Index. My answer of course was look that's what's happened already after the economic transaction has taken place. We want to inspire change before that transaction has occurred and so that's where the tax game comes in to provide the necessary carrots and sticks where necessary to encourage better economic behavior. Just over the last month I've been uh, blasting out uh, press releases and trying to lobby behind closed doors to get politicians to recognize that we are under a national economic emergency at the moment. Business as usual on uh, the land game cannot continue. It's leading us to all sorts of sprawling alternatives now that this sort of e-change work from home agenda is up. People are moving to the regional areas. Uh, I read about Apollo Bay, uh, shops there having to shut down for a couple of days a week during the middle of uh, the Christmas rush on the beachfront there. Not a, a good economic outcome on one of the busiest uh, weeks of the year, but they had to do that because their staff were exhausted because no uh, key workers can actually afford to live in that town anymore because everything's gone to Airbnb or property investors have moved down there because they prefer the lifestyle. So uh, people are getting squeezed out even in, you know, regional areas where, you know, marginal land prices uh, should be seeing that, uh, you know, people on f regional incomes can actually survive there. But no, all of these city slickers moving out of uh, apartments, moving out of... Uh, crowded inner city locations looking for that green space uh, they're causing their own raft of problems so what i did was i looked at the average growth rates for land prices in australia over the last decade and when i did that i could see that if we projected forward for another decade it was not going to be pretty Business as usual could not continue because uh, land prices are streaming ahead of wage growth. The last 10 years, which you know pretty well saw three or four, uh, three years wiped out with the global financial crisis. Then we had a huge correction in 2018, you know, the biggest fall there. In 2018, land prices fell by 31% more than the biggest fall during the GFC. With a rocky last decade, land prices still grew by 4.9%. Our wage growth in the most recent uh, uh, measurement was at 1.4%. But if we look back over 20 years, we can see that uh, the 2000s, uh, the so-called noughties, were really named that way because land prices in that decade increased by 12.6%. 
primarily driven by the halving of the capital gains tax and uh, the unleashing of the animal spirits as uh, anyone uh, in the upper echelons of society got the nod and the wink that property speculation was the only way forward and uh, terminology such as uh, passive incomes are crucial to your future became uh, the modus operandi for anyone in the know. So uh, there are wages growing along at 2 or 3%, but in the noughties, 12.6% uh, was the increase in land price on average across the whole nation. So if we average that out over 20 years, it was 8.7%, the growth rate. Repeating, wages are, are barely pushing 1.5% at the moment, have barely pushed 2% for the last decade. You'd, you'd be struggling to say 3% uh, over the last 20 years. So, yeah, we can't keep up. And if we forecast forward knowing that the federal government uh, has put housing affordability in the, the back drawer, the Labor Party here in Victoria has done a little bit of work on it, but really it's closer to policy fraud than any effective sort of uh, outcomes there. Uh, we're not going to see any real determined efforts to pull in this sort of land price speculation that's going on all over the place. So if we're to assume that land prices were to grow on the same average as that occurred over the last decade, well, we're going to add another 2.3 billion dollars to national land prices in just the next five years but hey looking at what's happening i really feel that the 20-year average of 8.7 percent is way more likely and that's going to add over four trillion dollars in the next five years we're going to increase from six trillion to ten trillion and in three of those next five years looking at the averages we're going to break the land price inflation record in total so i'm sorry my friends i talked to my, one of my sisters about this and uh, she nearly ends up in tears and i just can't tell her what's happening with build to rent and prop tech and what's coming down the, the pipeline but geez i'd love some really wealthy podcast listener to knock on my door and say carl it is time i'm committing 200k a year so you can double your operations at prosper australia that's what we need god if only our budgets were growing at 8.7% uh, a year, that would be nice. Because, yeah, these rent seekers, they've just got it happening on so many fronts. So, of course, politicians are worried about Australia's low productivity. We've talked before about how land price inflation is included in the denominator of the productivity function so as land prices increase productivity appears to fall doesn't do much for wage growth when that's happening seems to be uh, beautifully aligned to uh, to keep wages low as land prices keep flying along and when we're all spending more on uh, somewhere to live there's less money to spend in our local community less money to spend on green goods 
less wage growth, less uh, employment hours, uh, less capital, less profits available for small businesses to invest in productivity enhancing machinery. So we have all this dead money, we just throw at uh, the real estate game, the land game. And from that, uh, we see the floods in New South Wales, the fires uh, in the east of uh, Victoria, communities uh, ravaged by natural disasters soon have to continue paying record high mortgages there and the flexibility society needs to deal with these changing circumstances is not possible. They're stuck in a straitjacket. They have to keep playing the game. God knows what that means in terms of uh, the financial pressures, the divorce rates, all those sort of things. So, um, yeah, we're hoping that the changes in New South Wales where they are moving away, it's, it appears they're moving away from stamp duties towards land tax will have some effect. But we need to back that up with uh, rezoning windfall gains taxes costing the nation some $20 billion a year there. Huge money. But here we have the Victorian government going for uh, a $30 million tax on uh, electric vehicles. Great for the Herald Sun readership. The lowest com common denominators love that. But uh, yeah, is that the sort of change we really need? Maybe it's they're leading us towards a future of congestion pricing on roads, which is a step forward. The role of wealthy rent seekers undermining change in society seems to be what's going on. It's the battle of old money in the coal sector versus new money in big tech, in solar, and uh, old money trying to protect their interests the new players are coming through and uh, so in summary when we raise the taxes on land people recognize they've got an ongoing annual charge to cover so they bid less up front they borrow less from banks they pay less in mortgage interest over the lifetime of uh, that mortgage that slows down the rate of growth of land price inflation and hopefully it starts to track more closely our wage growth. And when that happens, the economy can start to slow down. Remember how big land is compared to the entire value of the Australian Stock Exchange. And it appears that in just three or four years of this upcoming land price boom, that the growth in Australian land prices will outstrip the current valuation of the wealthiest companies in the nation. So just the next three years worth of land price growth will in itself be greater than the entire value of the ASX. So already the Australian land values are at $6.2 trillion and the ASX is around about 1.5 trillion. So it's already four times greater. And uh, yeah, people are not concerned about this. The press release didn't deliver 
one single interview, as always when we raise this issue. Uh, luckily, I finally got the op-ed published after about five attempts. Promise it wasn't that bad. You can find the link to the op-ed in the show notes at prosper.org.au. But yeah, when we tax away these short-term speculative profits, uh, the treadmill starts to slow down. And when our wages do match land price growth, we can actually think about working four days a week. We don't have to spend so much of our weekly earnings on renting a secondhand piece of the earth. I mean, we're just trading places on this earth. We're not creating anything new, but yet the price is just increasing at astronomical levels. That curtails the artist's Uh, from spending more time uh, creating, uh, exposing the joys of the world, exposing the the hidden horrors uh, that only artists can reveal. And how ironic is it that after being shunned uh, with a job keeper, job seeker, that now the property council's uh, trying to party like 1992 and roll the creative classes back into the CBD of Melbourne get all those uh, warehouse parties going that was so awesome back in the day and uh, reignite the urban CBD land prices. Well, uh, I hope the arts community can take a moment and consider how they should react to uh, their role as pawns in the global gentrification game. 